Hello, my name is Anthony. I'll be speaking today. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to come and speak with you. Uh, as Angela said, I've been coming to New Community with my wife for about eight years now. Uh, so way back when we were at ICI, the gym, some of you remember meeting back there. Uh, and I've been working for university for seven years. So uh, it's, been a, it's been a long time that I've been doing that and really love college students. I know a lot of you have been a part of university, uh, and so I appreciate um, just what InterVarsity has done for our church and done for so many college students uh, across the country. Um, just one thing I wanted to say, man, go to the missions team thing. Uh, as someone who is a missionary, I really appreciate the, the things they do, the ways that they support us. So check that out. You can learn a lot of good things and find some really good ways to, to bless people, not just here, but the missionaries that we support uh, all across the world. So uh, a little about me. I grew up in Chicago. Uh, born and raised all over uh, the city, mostly north and northwest side. Uh, 13 years of Catholic education. Anybody else? Catholic school? A few people, all right. St. Ben's, anyone? St. Ben's? No? Okay. I thought maybe. Uh, and uh, I love Chicago. I love being here. I told my wife when we got married that she was going to have to drag me kicking and screaming out of Chicago uh, to ever get me to move. She's not from Chicago, so... Uh, but she has learned to appreciate it, thankfully. Uh, we did just have a baby. Her name is Maya. She's seven weeks old tomorrow. Yes. And I assume by that clapping that you're all volunteering to babysit. So talk to me later because we could use it. We could use a date night. Uh, we also have a son who is three, Benjamin. Uh, you'll often see him running around like crazy outside uh, with all the other kids. So... Uh, today, we are going to be talking about Nehemiah. Uh, it's a book of the Old Testament. Um, Nehemiah was uh, uh, a governor. He, uh, he had a, um, an important role in the, in the Persian government. And we're going to talk about what he did, um, the life that he lived, um, and the chances, the risks that he took uh, to see the benefit of his people. So a little bit of background. I've got a timeline up here. Um, the... the Kingdom of, of Israel uh, was, was founded uh, under the kingship of, of Saul. There were some other kings, David, Solomon. Eventually, the kingdom split. And if you ever read the book of Chronicles or the book of Kings, you see this pattern of, uh, in Israel, bad king after bad king after bad king. Uh, in the southern kingdom, in Judah, you have bad king, bad king, maybe a good king, then a bad king. And eventually, it just became more and more bad kings. And so, in the 700s, uh, the kingdom of Israel was destroyed, and then in 586, uh, Babylon came, they destroyed Jerusalem, and the people were taken into exile. The Jewish people were exiled, they were spread across uh, the Babylonian kingdom. That was their, their assimilation program, basically, in order to, to pacify people, to make them uh, not just a conquered people, but to make them Babylonian, they would transport them all over their kingdom and try to assimilate them. Eventually, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. That was in 539 B.C., and the Persians had a different take on things. They actually were okay with people having their own identity. They were okay with people worshiping their own gods. And so they, uh, they passed a law saying that the Jewish people could go back. They could go back to, to Israel, to Judah. They could go back to Jerusalem. And so many people started to do that. They started to come back. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple, the center of worship, uh, the center of religious life 
for, um, for the Jews was destroyed, but they rebuilt it in 516 B.C. Um, a guy named Ezra, he, he led a group of, of volunteers. This is actually the book right before Nehemiah. Many commentators actually think it, it really is one book or, or the two halves of one book. Uh, he led a group back, uh, and then we get to the book of Nehemiah. So we're in this situation where the temple's been rebuilt. There are some people living in the city, but the city is mostly empty. And the walls are destroyed. There's no wall around the city. And they're surrounded by people who don't really like them. Now, I want you to think in the, in the, uh, put yourself in the mind of like a military commander, a general or something, and think through like, what's the worst possible situation you could find yourself in? And I really think it'd be something like being in an unfortified position, protecting your families, your livelihood, your, your, your flocks, your home, protecting the single most important place in the world for you, and being surrounded and outnumbered by enemies. That's a pretty bad military position. And that's exactly the situation that the Jews were in. They were a demoralized, defeated people, and they felt like at any moment they could be wiped off the map. And that's where Nehemiah comes in. So in December of 446, Nehemiah gets a report from his brother. Now, Nehemiah was an important guy. He was a cu- the cupbearer to the king of the Persians. The cupbearer was the guy that would uh, serve wine to the king. He, was, uh, he would make sure that uh, it wasn't poison, that the king wasn't dealing with, with uh, the fear of being poisoned. So he was someone that the king trusted. But it wasn't, he wasn't a waiter. He wasn't just a server. He had the ear of the king. He had influence. He was, had a position in the government. Nehemiah was an important, influential, powerful person. And his connections to the Persian culture, the Persian government, were really strong. He has grown up only knowing the Persian empire, the Persian culture. He's strongly tied uh, to the Persian government. He probably had a strong Persian education, which means he would know their laws, he would know their customs, he would know their religious life. Some commentators actually suspect that he was a eunuch, that he had been castrated in order to attain a higher office in the Persian government. So that's a pretty big commitment to Persian life, uh, in my view at least. Um, he, He, by any measure is Persian culturally. He has incredibly strong ties. His ties to his Jewish heritage, his Jewish culture, especially to Jerusalem, are not very strong. He's got some family there. We know he has at least one brother that was there. That's all we know. That's all we know about his attachment, his connection to Jerusalem. I really resonate with, with Nehemiah's story. Uh, as I said, I grew up in Chicago. Um, I'm white and Latino. My mother is white. My mother is here, actually, and my stepdad. They're right back there. Thought I'd embarrass them. Uh, and my dad is Latino. Um, I grew up uh, in Chicago. I, I grew up uh, mostly living with my mom, uh, almost the entire time living with my mom. And so uh, I didn't get a lot of exposure to my Latino background, my Latino heritage. Uh, my dad was always in the picture. I had a, have a great relationship with my dad, but I only saw him like once a week, really. Uh, and so I grew up not really wanting to be Latino. I didn't really have an attachment there. I didn't really have a connection. Uh, there was a lot of like discomfort, um, 
a lot of awkwardness when I thought about that part of me, and I didn't really want that. My attachment was to the majority culture. Uh, most of the schools that I went to, especially once we moved to the northwest side, were by and large Italian and Polish. So I was one of the few non-white people in any school that I was at. And so I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to be um, seen as an outsider. And so I really just identified with being white, and that's what I wanted to be. And so I, I resonate with Nehemiah that his cultural heritage is so strongly one way, and yet his ethnic heritage is different than that. I even resonate with sort of this attachment to the city. Like, I, I love Chicago. I've always loved Chicago. But I grew up in, in pretty good neighborhoods. Uh, we we uh, lived, in, like I said, in the northwest side, right by the, the suburbs. Um, I didn't go to school every day wondering if I was going to get shot or wondering if I was going to get beat up. I didn't have to worry about what colors I wore to make sure I was wearing the right thing. That wasn't my reality. And yet, for so many people in the city... That is their reality. I remember in high school, and it, it pains me that this is something I would joke about, but I remember joking about some other schools and saying, oh yeah, when, you know, depending on what floor you're on, you have to change clothes because of the gangs. And that was a joke to me, but it's a reality to many students across the city. It's gotten to the point in some schools uh, where the actual thing that the, that the educators, the administrators, the, the police officers tell you to do in order to stay safe is when you're walking home, walk in the middle of the street. That way no one can jump out at you from behind bushes or fences or in someone's yard. That's what they actually tell students to do in our city because of the fear of getting beat up or attacked. But that pain, that reality, was not my reality. That's not what I grew up with. And so I had a detachment from it. I didn't understand it. Nehemiah doesn't have an attachment to the disaster that's going on in Jerusalem other than the report he hears from his brother. And so we're going to read. We're going to be kind of all over Nehemiah, but we're going to focus especially on the first and second chapter. So Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province uh, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So you can see it's a bad situation. No gates, no walls. They're surrounded by enemies. And right here, Nehemiah has a choice. Nehemiah doesn't have to do anything. He can stay disengaged. He can say, oh, wow, that's really terrible. Good luck with that. He can shake his head and be like, man, I hope, I hope something gets better for you. He could have refused to hear his brother's report. He didn't even have to do that. He was a powerful man. But here's what happened when Nehemiah did hear the report. When I heard these things... I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's response was to enter into the pain of his people. He sat down and wept. He mourned and fasted for days. He felt in a very real way the desperate uh, situation that his people were in. 
he made a choice to engage at that level of pain. We're going to talk about the ways that he engaged, and the first way he engaged is he entered into the pain of his people. He felt their desperation. He felt their fear. He felt their shame. As I got older, um, especially once I became a Christian in college, I began to realize that I wasn't just white. I couldn't just make that my identity, that there was this other part of me. Um, And it took a lot of things, and I'm going to talk about some experiences uh, that I had that helped me realize that there's this other part of me and helped me understand what, what is this other community that I'm a part of, that God has, has given me an attachment to? It also helped, I, I began to understand the city a little bit better and to say that the city wasn't just this cool place with a lot of great places to eat, um, that that was my reality, that was my connection to the city, but that there was a lot of pain and suffering in the city, that some people were in poverty, some people had to worry about where's their next meal coming from, some people were desperately afraid of the violence uh, that, over, that has overtaken our city. And I began to enter into the pain of our city. I began to understand that my reality was not everyone's reality. Not everyone got to go to a good school. Not everyone had the assumption that they were going to college. Neither of my parents went to college, but I don't remember a day that I ever thought that it was an option to not go to college. I never, it never even crossed my mind that I wouldn't go to college. That was what my parents instilled in me. But that's not true for so many people in the city, and I began to understand that. I began to um, see children who were worried about whether they could even finish high school, whether they would live that long, who were faced with the prospect of, of violence every day. And so Nehemiah enters into their pain. Now let's go to the next section here. This is, so this is a longer section I'm going to read through here. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and who keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you, We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. After entering into the pain of his people, Nehemiah begins to pray. He begins to intercede. Now, this isn't, as you can see from uh, what he's talking about and, and what he does, this isn't a quick, like, Oh, God, take care of them, be with them, amen. He's not giving some light little prayer. It says, for days he fasted and mourned. This is something that uh, uh, American churches, we're not very good at mourning. It's not something that we're all that great at, especially white American churches. But if you look at uh, ethnic minority churches or churches in in the global periphery of, of the world, they know what it means to lament and to mourn. 
They know what it means to, to enter into pain in a way that's not offering easy solutions or offering, oh, you know, God has a plan and these sort of pat, cliche answers. They know what it means to sit and be and just be in pain with you. There's actually a Jewish tradition, which I don't know if it existed here, but it's called sitting Shiva. When someone dies, you go and you be with them and you sit with them. You sit with the family. And there's not a lot of expectation of you're doing things for them or you're trying to make them feel better. You just sit and you be with them in their pain. And Nehemiah sat in the pain. This mourning was not just putting on some black. It was covering your head in ashes, wearing sackcloth, not eating. It was visible. People could see that you were in mourning. Do we really mourn for the injustice around us? Nehemiah was broken because his people, his city was broken. Do we mourn that our people, our cities are broken? This was not, again, this was not my reality. I didn't, my heart didn't break for my city for a long time. And I wish I could say that now, like every time that I see, um, violence in the news or something like that, that it breaks me up. But it's really easy to get immune to that when you see so much of it and you see the news and hear that another kid died, that someone else was shot, especially in my neighborhood. I live in Humboldt Park. There is a lot of violence in my neighborhood. And it's really easy to get immune to that, to, keep, to be desensitized. And I don't want that to be true of me. I don't want to see violence as commonplace. I don't want to see young kids getting shot, getting beat up, dying as being commonplace. And so Nehemiah puts a plan in action, and he starts to do some things. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? I love the king's response here. He knows exactly where where Nehemiah is going. He's not like, oh, that's too bad. It's like, okay, just tell me what you need here. Um, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of of trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that, he will give me, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates and the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So Nehemiah hears this report, and it's actually four months later that he talks to the king. So there's a, there's a gap, there's a, t- uh, a time where he waits. And it doesn't talk about this in the scripture, but I really believe what he was doing in that time is he was making a plan. 
He didn't go and hear the report and rush off to the king and rush into it. He set a plan in place. His next level of engagement was to plan, to think through, what do my people need and what can I do? What can I provide? When the king asks him, what do you want? He knows what he wants. He says, I want to go. I want to help my people. How long will you be gone? He sets a time. Also, can you give me these letters so that I'll have safe conduct? Can you give me permission to cut down trees in the royal park? He also, uh, the king sends him with, with a guard, with an escort, so he'll be safe on the road. Nehemiah thinks through. He doesn't go into this uh, without thought, without a plan. So we see Nehemiah. He has suffered with his people. He's, he's experiencing their pain. He's praying for his people. He sets some plans. Now, what if he stopped here? What if this is all he did? Does any of this really matter if he stops right here? I mean, yeah, it's nice that he he had this emotional experience. He took these days to pray, that he brainstormed some things to do. But if he stops here, if he doesn't go further, it really doesn't mean anything. So it's really the next step, the next step that he takes that's so important, and that Nehemiah takes a risk. And there's some cultural things going on here that really show just how risky this was. Uh, It was actually illegal to be sad in front of the king. You weren't allowed to do that. The king was set apart, sort of uh, holy, and, and, and he wasn't supposed to have these negative things around him. And so to be sad in front of the king would actually mean that Nehemiah could be arrested. He could be uh, put to death because of this. He was literally putting his life on the line. He could have uh, his position taken away from him, his wealth confiscated. He could be thrown in jail, thrown out in the street because he was sad in front of the king. Which is why you see when, when the king asks him what's wrong, it says, I was very much afraid. This wasn't an easy thing for Nehemiah to do. He's scared. He's scared of this guy who he has a relationship with, he has connection with, but he knows the power dynamic, all the power is with him, with the king, not with Nehemiah. But he puts it on the line. He puts everything on the line. And the, he finds favor, and, he, and, he, and it says that the gracious hand of my God was upon me. He finds favor with the king. And so he goes. He goes to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he begins to look around. It says during the night, he went and inspected the walls. He didn't really want anyone to know what he was doing yet. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the major ones is there was a couple of guys who very much didn't want anyone taking care of the Israelites. Uh, It said when they heard that Nehemiah had came, they were very much concerned because someone had come to speak up for the welfare of the Israelites. They didn't want anyone taking care of them. They liked the fact that they were in control and the Jewish people were broken and the Jewish people were, were afraid and that they didn't have protection and things like that. And so these guys, uh, one guy was named Sambalat, uh, another guy is named um, Tobiah, I think. Um, and um, they tried to kill Nehemiah. They would send him letters saying, hey, come meet with us out in this, this place in the middle of nowhere. Let's talk a little bit. And Nehemiah knew they were trying to kill him. They tried to discredit him. Uh, they had someone inside the Jewish community, they had connections inside the Jewish community. They had someone tell him, like, oh, they're coming to kill you. Go into the temple. H- uh, hide yourself in the holy place in the temple. But if he did that, he would be breaking the law. 
by going into the holy place. So he knew they were trying to discredit him. They were trying to to ruin his reputation. He faced all this opposition externally, but he also faced internal pressures. There was people who didn't want to to do the work. There was um, Jewish nobles who refused to to do the work. They refused to work uh, alongside in rebuilding the wall. They had people who were lending at at high interest rates, and that was illegal. You weren't allowed to uh, lend at an interest rate to fellow Jewish people. They were lending at such high interest rates uh, that the Jewish uh, people who were working on the wall were forced to sell their, their sons and daughters into slavery. Now, this is at a time when the Jewish people were trying to buy back their brothers and sisters that were sold into slavery. They were trying to rebuild their people. And because of the actions of their own nobles, their own leaders, more and more Jewish sons and daughters were being sold into slavery. And Nehemiah had to deal with that. He faced it right on. He admonished them publicly. He made them buy back people. He made them uh, uh, lend out food and and money at, at at no interest. And so... He, he's facing all this opposition, and at the same time, he's trying to build a wall. Building a wall is not a, a light undertaking. You can see uh, the wall, the dark line there, uh, the sort of uh, oblong shape. That's the wall he was trying to rebuild. That's 4.5 miles of wall that he's trying to rebuild. This is not an easy undertaking. And because of the opposition they were facing, it says that it got to the point where they would have half the people working on the, on the wall and the other half standing behind them with swords and spears and bows just in case they were under attack. They had the, the army officers spread all around so they could keep an eye on things. Nehemiah said that uh, he and his brothers and, and his household, they never even took off their clothes. They would go to sleep in their clothes with their spear right by them just in case they had to jump up in the middle of the night to fend off an attack. And throughout all of this, 4.5 miles of wall, they finished it in 52 days. Now, I'm not a construction worker. I don't know much about masonry. That's really fast, I think, for 4.5 miles of wall. There's this awesome section, uh, this whole chapter, where Nehemiah goes section by section and says, this guy and these people, they built this. And these people built this part. And, these people, and he goes just around the whole wall to talk about the sections that people built. Uh, some sections are large. Some sections are small. There's no sense of like, oh, the people who did more, they're better. Like Everyone did what they could. But there was a couple notable things. There's one where it says the nobles of, of the city of Tekoa, they wouldn't bend their shoulder to the burden. And so it was only the people. The nobles wouldn't do it. There's another section where it says a guy named Shalom, he built the section of wall across from his house with his daughters. He had his daughters out there. That's how committed he was. That wasn't work that women would do back then. And yet he had his daughters and himself out there building that section of wall. 52 days to build 4.5 miles of wall. Now, to build a wall that quickly, you can guess that the quality wasn't great. Um, And actually, archaeology shows that the wall wasn't really all that well built. Because the point really isn't the wall itself. The point wasn't, oh, now we have a wall, now we're okay. The point was the identity of the people. He was not just rebuilding a wall, he was rebuilding a people. 
The Jews had been spread, they had been defeated, they had been exiled, spread across uh, the Near Eastern world, and now God is bringing them back. They've had uh, over a hundred years of, of assimilation into other cultures, and now God is trying to rebuild the people on the ideals that he set out for them to begin with. And so there's something about having this walled city that gives them an identity of a people that they didn't have before because they were so afraid of attack. They were so afraid of the people around them. Now they can say, we are a fortified city. We are a fortified people. And then Nehemiah goes on to start doing some other things. He doesn't just stop at the wall and say, okay, I did my job. I'm done. He starts rebuilding uh, a nation. He sets up the, the temple worship. He sets up the the, the giving for, for food and for incense so that the temple can take place. He sets leaders in place. He helps them uh, understand the law and what they're supposed to do. And he rebuilds their faith as well. There's a section where Ezra comes out and reads the law to the people. They find out that they're not supposed to marry foreign wives, and so they, they uh, set about changing, changing that. They find out they're not supposed to um, have... have uh, the market open on the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah has the gate shut so that merchants can't come in on the Sabbath. It's actually kind of funny. They have these, these merchants that come anyway and they camp outside the gate waiting for it to open. And Nehemiah sort of jeers at him and says, why are you doing this? I told you, you can't be in here. Go away. Um, he, sets, he sets up a lifestyle. He sets up a, a, a cultural norms so that they cannot just be a, a loosely connected group that shares this faith, but an actual people, an actual body of people that are unified, that can go to the temple and have the rhythms of the temple fully, uh, um, fully lived out. And the opposition doesn't stop. It says um, the, uh, Nehemiah goes back. He actually goes back to, to Persia uh, for a little bit. When he comes back, there's other problems that have come up. He finds out that people have stopped giving the grain offerings that the priests and the Levites live off of. And so the Levites leave. They go to their fields so that they can grow food. Um, he finds out that one of these guys that was trying to kill him, one of these guys that was trying to, to discredit him and trying to stop the wall building, one of the priests gave him some space in the temple to store some stuff. He finds, he, I mean, imagine his, how shocked he would be. They know that this guy's an enemy, and yet one of the priests says, oh, sure, store stuff in the temple of all places. And so he has all it thrown out and has it repurified. He resets up the, the grain offerings to make sure that the Levites are taken care of. It doesn't just end when the wall is built. He keeps going. He keeps giving himself. He keeps uh, sacrificing. There's a section where it talks about the money that was given uh, so that the temple life the, the, can, can continue and they can support that. And Nehemiah himself gave something like 20 pounds of gold, which the value of that is somewhere around $400,000 in today's terms. He sacrificed in a very real way. I know, I, well, I don't personally know anybody, but there are very few, few people that can give $400,000 and not feel that. If you know of any of those people, let me know. I raise my support for a living and I'd like to meet them. Um, those people that... that there are very few of those. And Nehemiah gives radically to this project, to this thing that he's doing. He is sacrificing at so many levels. And yet, at any point, he could have chosen to stop. 
He could have chosen disengagement. Nehemiah had an out. He could always go back to Persia. He could always resume his role as cupbearer. He could have looked at this opposition and said, well, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm not going to deal with the people who keep screwing up. I'm not going to deal with these guys all around me who are trying to kill me. I'm going to go back. And Jerusalem, man, it's on you. It's on you to deal with, what, with this. He chose to continue to engage in rebuilding this wall and rebuilding this people. The reality for most of us in this room is that we have a choice in our level of engagement. I have a choice in how I engage with my ethnicity. I have a choice with how I engage with my city. I could have stayed in that point where I didn't really want to be Latino. I could have decided, you know what, I'm just going to be white. That's all I am. That's, that's going to describe me completely. And yet God had a different plan. God, ha- cho- God uh, led me into engaging fully with my ethnicity. Now, I could have chosen some light level of engagement. I could have chosen like, oh, well, you know, now I have this sort of cool little part of me that, you know, I can speak a little bit of Spanish and can go eat Mexican food and, and that'll be cool. And I'm Guatemalan, so it doesn't even make sense. Um, I could have chosen that light level of engagement to have this cool part of me. Like, it could be just neat, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not just white. I'm Latino, too. Yay. Um, I could choose to engage with my city at a level to be like, oh, I know all the cool places to eat. Um, I know the cool little hidden secrets of Chicago. And that's my level of engagement. Nehemiah could have chosen to just offer some, uh, a little bit of advice and, and maybe offer a little money, write a check to his brother and say, good luck. Um, I really hope things work out for you. He could have chosen an easy level of engagement. And I think the reality is that we have that option too. I have that option. I had that option to engage with my city at an at a easy level because I, could, I was going to a good school. I had the expectation of going to college. Even now, I live in Humble Park. I don't make a lot of money. I have options. I could, I could always afford to move to the suburbs. My son is going to be school age soon. And, you know, personally really wrestling with the idea of sending him to a public school. And it's not so much about his education. I feel like my wife and I could always supplement that, but it's really about his safety. I can't protect him when he's at school. But I have the option. I can move out to the suburbs. I could use my, my mom lives in the suburbs. I could use her address and send him to a school out in the suburbs. I could protect him and get him out. And yet, if all the Christians do that, if all the people who have the option do that, who's going to advocate? Who's going to enter into pain? Who's going to enter into suffering at the cost of their options, at the cost of their, uh, the, the better things that they could have? Nehemiah sacrificed, not in a light way, He put his life on the line. He put his livelihood on the line, his wealth, his position, his influence. And Jesus did the same thing. At any point when Jesus came to earth, he could have chosen to leave. There's a scene in the garden uh, when Jesus was about to be betrayed. The soldiers came to him. Peter strikes out with the sword, cuts a guy's ear off, and Jesus says to him, couldn't I summon 10 legions of angels at any point if I wanted to? Just reminding him, 
that even though he's about to be arrested, he's the one in control. He's the one with the power. When he's on the cross, people are jeering at him saying, oh, you saved so many people, now save yourself. He could have. He could have done that. This was not a, a, someone in a weak position being taken against their will. This was the most powerful person alive going fully of his will to sacrifice, to suffer with, to suffer for us. And that's what the word compassion means, to suffer with, to give up our rights, to give up our options, to give up the better things that we could have so we can be in the pain of others. Nobody did that more than Jesus, who suffered for us for something he didn't do, he didn't deserve, and he didn't need to to take on himself. Nehemiah didn't need to do what he did. He didn't need to suffer for his people. He didn't have to face all the opposition he faced. He didn't have to give his money. He didn't have to sacrifice his, his time and his position. He didn't have to do that. Those of us that live uh, in the city, many of us, we don't have to sacrifice. I don't have to sacrifice uh, the feeling of my son's security. I don't have to do that. I don't have to sacrifice my money to give to, to different organizations. I don't have to sacrifice my time to serve in places. But if I'm going to suffer with, if I'm going to be compassionate for my community, if I'm going to enter into their pain, if I'm going to be like Jesus and follow his example, that's what he's called me to do. Now, I'm not talking about coming into a community and, and we're, you know, the, the knights in shining armor coming in to fix everything. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about coming into a community and learning, entering into pain. There's a, a thing that we do in InterVarsity called the Chicago Urban Program, which some of you in, in here probably have done before. Uh, you take college students, mostly uh, wealthy um, suburbanite college students, and take them to the west side of Chicago, to the Austin neighborhood, uh, which is a, a highly underserved uh, community, faces a lot of problems. And you don't go in there to serve. You don't go in there to, you know, do some after-school care and do some building projects and, and say you got your, you know, you did your good deed. You go in there to learn. You go to meet with people who are on the ground floor of, of rebuilding their community. People who have been living there for decades serving this community, suffering with the people all around them, where the center of the community really is this church, and this church stands between uh, their community and, and really it falling apart completely, where people suffer with each other, where pain isn't lightly brushed aside with, with things like, oh, God has a plan for you, um, you'll be all right, just keep pushing through, but where they sit and mourn with each other the difficult things that are going on. You learn from these people. You go with them and see what they're doing. I went into this when I first did this program as a college student. I hadn't even been a Christian a year yet, um, but I had this mindset of like, oh, you know, I'm a Christian, so I guess I should do service or something, um, you know, do my good deed for Jesus, and he'll be really happy with me. Um, and so I went and did this Chicago Urban Program, and when I left, I left feeling guilty. And it wasn't an unhealthy guilty. It really was healthy because I felt like I received so much more than I gave that week. Because I began to understand what people in the community are doing 
to improve the situation there. I began to understand how they were serving, how they were suffering, how they were um, working every day, striving every day to improve things, not just for themselves, but for everybody in that community. I began to understand my own ethnicity more. That really, at Chicago Urban Program was really the first time where I began to understand it means something that I'm Latino. It means something that God made me that way, that it wasn't an accident, it wasn't a, a mistake, it, it was something that he did purposely. And that there's something he wants to do in that. What communities has God put you in? Who has he given you an attachment to? What people has he introduced you to? What people do you have relationship with? What organizations do you know? What neighborhoods do you live in? What churches do you have connection with? Because those things are not accidental. It wasn't chance. God is setting us up to be with people, to suffer with them, to serve with them, to pray with them, to mourn with them, and to work and standing in that gap between uh, the kingdom and the realities of this world. The, the idea of, of being kingdom builders is the idea of bringing God's kingdom into reality in the world. And there's a point in Scripture, in, in uh, the book of Luke, where, where Jesus talks about the cost of being a disciple. And he says, surely, you know, when someone goes to build a, a tower, they count the cost first. So that way they don't start building a foundation and then run out of money. And then people see the foundation and, and mock that person. He talks about a battle commander who says, they count the odds first. Do I, you know, do I with my 10,000 men, can I go up against the guy who has 20,000? And if I can't, I got to make peace quickly. So he says, there's a cost to being a disciple, to being a follower of mine. And he goes on to say, if salt loses its saltiness, what value has it? And his point is, a disciple who's not willing to pay the cost isn't really worth much. It's lost its saltiness. He's talking to us. If we're not willing to count the cost, and he says very clearly, count it. Count the cost. Don't go into this lightly. Nehemiah didn't go in rashly. He didn't go in blind. He set a plan. He set an agenda. He knew the costs. We have to count the costs And then as Jesus paid the costs on the cross, so we have to pay those costs to suffer with, to give up our rights, to give up our privileges, to give up the options, to give up better things that we could have in order to have better things for others. Instead of me fleeing my community to a better one, I can stay and commit to making this community better. Instead of me choosing to only be white, I can stay and commit to being Latino, to, to the cost of, of embarrassment, of shame at times. There are times where I feel shame that I don't speak Spanish really well, that I don't know um, what Guatemalan culture is like, that I don't like soccer. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't like soccer. I'm a football guy, all right? I have to count the cost of that, but it's worth it to engage with my community because I can't fully be me unless I am fully white and fully Latino. We don't get to cut ourselves apart and, dis- and sort of uh, uh, compartmentalize ourselves and say, this 20% of me is this and 10% is this and 30% is this. We can't slice ourselves up that way. 
We can't choose engagement in one community we're a part of and not another. We don't work that way. We end up not being who we actually are. I am not actually fully me if I only am Latino or I only am white. I have to be fully both. And so God has given you a community. It might be an ethnic community. It might not be. It might be some other community. It might be around some other things. He has given you attachments in your communities, in your neighborhoods, in churches, organizations. He's given you attachments to your city. Your people in your city are the places where God has put you on purpose and is calling you to suffer with them. Where will you suffer? Where will you give of yourself? Where will you have compassion in order to bring the kingdom into reality? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the ultimate example of compassion. That you chose of your will to come to earth to live the perfect life we should have lived, to die the death that we deserved, and to defeat death also that we could be with you. I thank you for Nehemiah's example, for a man that didn't have to enter into his community, didn't have to engage with that, didn't have to be in their pain, didn't have to pray with them, didn't have to put everything on the line for them, but he did. And so, Lord, I pray for us now that we can count the costs. We can count the costs of following you and gladly pay those costs, not just for the good of our communities, but also for our good. And knowing that in paying those costs, we will get so much more from you. In knowing you more. That in those risks, when we take those big risks, that's when we find you. That's where we know you better. And where we come to love you even more, Lord. I pray that each one of us can find the place you're calling us to. And that we could suffer with and have compassion for those places. In Jesus' name, amen.